The eSeller Exchange provides key insights and learnings from influential stakeholders at and across the Amazon and e-commerce space with a UK and European focus. We'll be working to better understand what factors help to create an eSeller success. The podcast has been built to provide the listener strong takeaways, exploring key trends within the ecosystem and learning from the experiences of important players and top sellers alike. Today, we're joined by Greg Elfrink, Director of Marketing at Empire Flippers. Empire Flippers are the largest created marketplace for buying and selling online businesses in the world, with a total deal value exceeding $275 million and counting. They sell businesses across a wide spectrum, including affiliates, websites, and SaaS companies. But in this episode, we're going to be focusing on the FBA side of things. Today, we'll be exploring their journey, as well as learning how one goes about selling an Amazon business and the metrics and measurements that go into this. We're also going to delve into what life's after the exit for those who make it. So let's get into it. So going back in, in time a little bit, uh, you guys started in 2013. It'd be good to just understand how you started as a business. It's obviously a really niche space that you're in um, and, <laughs> yeah. and how it's grown into what it is today. Sure. So uh, our company way back in the day, even before 2013 existed, but it existed purely as an outsourcing company in the Philippines. So our co-founders, they had an outsourcing company, you know, a very typical outsourcing company. They would reach out to various businesses back in America. They would have a Filipino staff that does a bunch of different work, uh, that kind of situation. But what, what ended up happening is there was a major critical point of failure. And this is actually a good, a good lesson for your audience out there. We always say, if you want the best valuation, look to mitigate your critical point of failure. And in this case, the critical point of failure was the lion's share of that outsourcing company's uh, profits came from a single client. And when that client decided to stop paying, well, the whole company started going under, right? Because it made up like 80% of the revenue. And this is something uh, FBA owners, e-commerce store owners can fall into where they have just one product that makes up the entire revenue, like that's a dangerous situation, right? So what we ended up doing was like, okay, well, we have this whole staff, what can we do? They had read about making AdSense blogs and like, well, this is something we can have them do at least. So let's make a build a little AdSense blog. So these are really tiny microsites, like best red blender under $50.com style sites, right? Like, like they never produce more than 10 or $50 a month on the high end. And what we would do is we would, we found out about a, uh, another site called Flippa where we started listing on them uh, to sell. And we were blogging about this whole journey. Back then we were called AdSense Flippers. We built up this whole audience and we found all these pain points in selling these sites on Flippa. And our audience, they started reaching out to us like, hey, you have this huge audience that's following you guys on this journey. Could I uh, give you my site to sell since you already have the audience and I'll pay you a commission. Like, oh, that's an idea. So uh, we started doing that for other people. What we found out is other people are much better at building businesses like these than we were and it became much bigger businesses. And uh, we started like, all right, we're shutting down everything. We're shutting down the outsourcing company. We're going full on as a website marketplace, which eventually developed into where we are today as the largest curated marketplace and M&A advisor in the world, uh, all from those humble beginnings of little $50 sites. I, when I first came on board uh, five years ago, I remember my CEO, we, we were in Manila in the Philippines where he lives, and he was telling me, 
Uh, he was just got done with a super long sales call. Uh, we were selling a $150,000 e-commerce store. And at the time that was the biggest business we ha like had on the marketplace. And he told me, Greg, you know, $150,000, the game changes. It's a totally different game to sell these things way harder. Like you really got to bring your A game to sell Like, wow, you know, like really impressed. He sold this thing. And two months ago, we just sold an $11 million business. So times have changed. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, I guess from just a marketplace perspective, how do you go about scaling a marketplace in that way and, and making people aware of what you're doing, both from the buy side and the sell side to, to get that growth, right? And, and how do you build that trust? Yeah, well, let me be the first of many marketers who have ever marketed for a marketplace to say it is terrible in terms of attribution tracking because you know, everything thinks you only have one customer, but a marketplace has two customers for every one deal, right? So you have to bring uh, the buyers and the sellers together. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. So a big part of it is trust. How do we endear our audience to trust us once we do get the audience? Uh, and a big way is like sharing mistakes that we've made, uh, you know, different things we've seen in the marketplace, all that kind of stuff. But it's a chicken and egg thing in the sense of scaling in that if I'm a Amazon FBA seller and I have a $5 million FBA business and they see that we've never sold a seven figure business, well, why would you choose them, right? You you want to choose someone who's done at least kind of what you're trying to do, right? So when we had our first seven-figure business, this usually what happens when we break one price threshold is not the highest quality of business that shows us because they're the risk taker, right? Like, well, no one else is accepting it. I guess I'll try you guys, right? Like, so we, we had that first seven-figure business. It took us like eight months to sell that business. It's by far the biggest business we ever had. And after we sold that, well, now the chicken and egg problem is solved because we write the case study that we sold the seven-figure business. Suddenly we are sworn by seven-figure businesses, You like typically sub two million. And then that's just starts snowballing, right? And then we reach the next uh, threshold, which is that $10 million, which in order to get them across the board to take a risk with us, we actually discounted our commission quite significantly just to get them through the door. So like selling a $5 million business was actually far more profitable than us, uh, than us selling a $10 million business. But we needed that first one, someone who would take the risk. So how do we get someone to trust us enough to take that risk for us to push that threshold and then build all the marketing collateral around that breakthrough, right? Once we show them like, no, look, we really are the better solution here. Let us you know, try our hand at it, right? So that, that's a big part of it. Interesting. And these larger sellers, before you started working with them, what other solutions were they potentially using to sell their business? And I guess, how do you build value on that? And how do you sell your services to, so they're better than the alternative out there? Right. So there are some competitors to us, of course, uh, and not all of them are bad. So what I'm about to say doesn't apply to all of them. But one of the things that does happen in my industry, which is, you know, a bit of smoke and mirrors sometimes is a broker will tell that super successful FBA entrepreneur, hey, look, I can get you this crazy multiple if you list with me. And so the FBA guy does, and they listed for that crazy multiple. And now they're in a six month exclusivity with that marketplace or with that broker. And the broker after like a month or two is like, Hey, look, we got to bring that price down. We got to be realistic here. Right. They start 
whittling them down and they know they're locked for half a year with this guy they just want the process done so it's almost like a bait and switch and I'm, again that doesn't happen with everyone but that is something that we have seen especially on the higher end uh, so one of the things that we do is we are the most process driven brokerage there is like we have a system of defined rules at every level of what we do that we are very, very rigid on. Like I had a friend, a close friend, he wanted to buy a business from us. He didn't want to verify his liquidity. He's like, well, you know me, can't you just change the process? Like I literally can't. It's programmed into our marketplace to be process driven. Like I can't help you. You have to go through the normal process. Uh, so we are very process driven and we give our valuations based off real sales data, not just based off trying to like bait someone in for them to sign exclusivity, which with us wouldn't even be a big deal because we only have two months exclusivity anyways. But uh, so those are some of the things. Another thing that we do, which is part of the process is a typical M&A advisor, usually they're wearing all the hats at once. So they're uh, what you call a kill or eat what you kill kind of organization. So that salesperson has to go out, build their book of business, all that kind of stuff. And they get paid a commission and you they are the only point of contact you have. When you use someone like us, we actually take a traditional M&A advisor and break them down into several different departments between sales, vetting, uh, even migrating the business, which we're the only broker who does that. And so you have one person that is specialized at this task, which makes it far more efficient, right? So those are some of the things that sets us apart. Other than, you know, everyone that works with us is pretty cool, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and and the people that are joining Empire Flippers, do they typically come from a background of where they sit in the department or are they bought in and then developed for Empire Flippers because it's such a niche product and such a niche category? Yeah, so you're talking about our employees? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really good question, actually. So we have, uh, <laughs> I, I say this super biased, but I, I think it's true. Like out of all of the brokers, like I feel like we're the only ones with real super fans. Like I remember walking in these alleyways in Saigon. I was wearing an Empire Flipper shirt. It's like on Vietnam where I live. Uh, and this guy came up to be like, you work for Empire Flippers? Like, yes. <laughs> you know, I was just going to go get a coffee. He's like, I love your guys' stuff. And then uh, I was walking, I was at a conference in Thailand and one of the speakers came out to me. He's like, I was just talking to this guy in an elevator wearing a, a Empire Flipper shirt. I thought he worked for you. So like, how's it like working for Greg? He's like, oh, I don't work for Empire Flippers. I, I just sold a business with them a couple of years ago. I haven't done anything since. <laughs> I've been like <laughs> retired for like four years. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we have uh, this huge audience that wants to work with us and be part of kind of our culture and all that kind of stuff. And usually in the past, we've developed people through our apprentice programs, but that has started to change because now we're starting to work with private equity, family offices. We're trying to grow our marketing channels in new and novel ways. So for example, I'm hiring a media buyer soon because I need an expert because our industry is so difficult to run ads in because it's the uh, make money online niche to the subset of people who actually do make money online. Yeah. And it's super, super competitive and convoluted. So I need to hire this top gun, right? Like I, I'm not an expert at paid ads, so I'm going to need to hire that one out. But traditionally we try to hire uh, and grow someone into the organization interesting interesting um, and you referenced there that you're working with kind of private equity big funds now who are looking to aggregate these businesses it would be interesting yeah. if you could go into a bit of detail about how the space has changed in the last year or so as we've seen these businesses pop up with 400 million dollars 
investable, $200 million investable. Um, what was the impact of that um, that had on your business? And why are they choosing to kind of work with you guys as opposed to go to these sellers directly and, and try and aggregate them and acquire them? Sure. So uh, we, we predicted that these aggregators were going to come onto the scene one day. We didn't quite know how it would happen. And back in 2017, there was a like an infantile version of this already happening, but all those funds failed. Like they just didn't have the right models. So you don't hear about them, but there's a litany of graveyards of failed aggregators that we're, we're familiar with that bought businesses with us. Uh, so in 2018 or towards the end of 2018, that started changing with the first ones that actually knew the right model, how to make it work. They started appearing. And then that exploded dramatically in 2020 or at the end of 2019 and throughout all of 2020, just exploded with these brand aggregators. But the interesting thing about them is they don't want to use a broker necessarily. They want to go private. So they like proactively build up their deal flow and they do super aggressive outreach. They have entire teams dedicated to it. But with that said, all of them still shop with a broker. And the reason why is because they're always looking for good deals at a good value, even if it's not private. And for some brand aggregators, in fact, most of them, I would say we helped create them because most of them didn't have any private deal flow when they started, right? So they're kind of forced to use a broker. So we helped them get their start in that sense. Um, <clears throat> in terms of why they like us, I think I think it's a few different reasons. One, we're super process driven, like I mentioned. So if you're going to be a repeat customer and when it comes to M&A advisory firms, our repeat customers, typically the buyer, not the seller, because usually it will take the seller another couple of years to build up another business that they can sell after they do sell that first one, right? Uh, a buyer wants a repeatable process that is comfortable, like an assembly line that makes them money, right? And that's what we do with our process. Now, the reason why they want to go private over say use us is again to get that better price because if a seller doesn't know what they're worth the buyer can buy for a much lower price seller feels like they got a great deal buyer knows they got a great deal but if the seller came to us we could way outperform most uh, offers that these brand aggregators produce so we just sold a uh, a business that a brand aggregator originally offered 1.4 million dollars with an earnout to that FBA entrepreneur, we we told them like that's way too low for what you've built, and so they trusted us and they listed with us instead. And we sold that business. I think it was uh, 2.3 million dollars with eight 1.8 million dollars upfront in their pocket. So just the upfront amount was an additional 400 thousand dollars that they got to walk away with on top of like. $200,000 a year stability payment plus five, I think it was 5% uncapped revenue share as long as it hit certain milestones for two years. So a much, much, much better deal. And that's because all the brand aggregators, the moment you get listed with us, now they're like, crap, now we have to compete with all the other brand mm -hmm. aggregators. <laughs> and make a much, much more better deal. We, we've had these aggregators say like, uh, if brand aggregator one makes an offer, let me know because I'll beat it, mm -hmm. right? Like you're not going to get that on a private deal. So they they love and hate us at the same time for these reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So would you say as a business, you're more in favor to the sellers and you benefit the sellers more or, or the buyers? Good question. So we our fiduciary responsibility is to the sellers. That's how we get paid. And the seller is technically the one that's paying us for the service, right? Now, with that said, we really don't believe in a zero-sum game here. Like we 
want the buyer to win because they got a good deal. We want the seller to win because they got a life-changing exit. And we win because we gave those two people that win, right? So we believe in win, win, win. So we're never going to uh, negotiate with a uh, uh, a seller saying like, like we we're going to tell the seller, you need to be reasonable. You need to be flexible, come down on your price or offer these kind of terms. Right. But we're also on the, on the flip side, we're not going to like pressure a buyer into buying something that's way outside of their budget. In fact, we, when we do our criteria discovery calls with uh, buyers, when they give us, you know, their budget, what they're trying to do, their current skill sets, background, all that kind of stuff. We sometimes tell them don't buy a business. <laughs> like you shouldn't buy this business. Uh, you know, maybe you go get some skills first without spending the $200,000 and then come back and spend the 200K with us. And sometimes they listen to us, sometimes they don't. We had this uh, commercial real estate investor, he bought a, uh, I think it was a $2.3 million business from us after 14 days about from hearing about us, right? And we, we told him on the sales call, like, are you sure you want to do this? Like you have like the, the skills run. He's like, no, but I, I think I could figure it out. Like, well, do you have the money to buy it? He's like, yes, I do. Like, okay, well maybe we should start lower. Like, no, I want to go big. Like, well, okay. <laughs> so we couldn't stop him in that case, but we tried to help me. And he actually did a really good job on the business. Actually. I followed up with him a few months after he's killing it. So he's right. So, uh, but, but yeah, we, so we try to help both sides. We don't want one person walking away from the table feeling like they got a bad deal, right? We want them to walk away uh, saying, well, we just helped you on the next step of your life. You know, whatever that might be, whether it's building a huge empire like the brand aggregators or, you know, setting into the into the sunset to retire in Asia or whatever, you know? Interesting, interesting. Um, so what are the key reasons for a seller that you see to actually sell their business just out of complete curiosity? Yeah, so th there's uh, uh, quite a few reasons. The main theme, of course, is the money. Um, the, you can get a legitimate life-changing exit, right? At even a, a smaller level, 400, 500K, you're probably not going to retire on that, but that's enough money to inject capital into other projects that you couldn't fund before. So we see a lot of sellers sell off a project to fund a bigger project that is in a more competitive space and they will sell the smaller project to build this like lucrative war chest. Uh, sub sellers, what they'll do is they'll sell their business and then they'll become business buyers. So we had a, a one person, they sold about $700,000 worth of businesses with us. And they took that money to start acquiring other businesses. And some of these businesses are now way, way bigger than the whole portfolio that they sold. Uh, and this is a funny thing with us. A lot of times our sellers become buyers because they'll see the mistakes that the sellers made and like, okay, well, this already has traction. I can come in and buy this business and scale it way faster than if I built it from scratch, right? So buy sellers will often become buyers or sellers will sell to get that capital to build other projects. Or I, I've actually seen sellers uh, sell so they can go heavy in on real estate. They'll go and buy properties free and clear. And then they have this like foundational uh, preservation of their wealth now that's always coming in via rental. So there's all sorts of reasons, but really the life-changing capital and the plans of what you're going to do around it is the central theme for most of the sellers. Interesting. So it's not, maybe not necessarily the end of their entrepreneurial journey, but actually- oh, That's very rare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I actually tell entrepreneurs, uh, the start of entrepreneurship for you is the moment you sell your first business because that is when the doors of possibilities open. 
because like when you start a business, you are so bootstrapped, like Amazon FBA owners, we have a buyer that buys a ton of them. And he, he has a, a joke that he said to us that we always repeat. He's like, I love all these FBA entrepreneurs. They're all super young and successful and completely broke because they're buying all this inventory, right? They, they're taking out loans they're putting on credit card to get to that next level of demand. And it is a stressful hamster wheel, right? But when you go sell that business, now your capital isn't demanding you, you get to demand your capital, right? So now you could go start another FBA business, but a smaller one that isn't scaled to the hilt and you have the capital where you don't need to take out the much riskier kind of credit loans like you did in your first business. You actually have a budget for once, which is a rarity for a lot of uh, bootstrap entrepreneurs, right? So yeah, I think selling a business is usually the gateway for their next big thing in entrepreneurship. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Because I know a lot of sellers I talk to, they've got like a seriously emotional attachment to that business, especially if it's a brand. So they're they're thinking, I don't want to give up my baby, but then maybe if you've taken it to the level you can get it to, then you can set up a new baby and really mold it in the way that you want to. I'm so glad you brought this up. So this is one of the things I tell sellers is one of the biggest mistakes they can make. And I call it having emotional equity. So emotional equity is just that. This business you know, maybe let me quit my job, spend time with my family, travel the world, whatever, right? It did all this amazing stuff. So when that seller does decide to sell, they have this way unrealistic valuation of the business because of all this emotional equity that built into the business. And the buyer's not, of course, not having that. They're like, I'm not buying the value of your your Disneyland vacation, right? With this, they're using a, a cold or arithmetic. But I always tell entrepreneurs like, you got to detach from that because it's not about the brand you build, but the process of how you built the brand. If you understand the process of how to run, say, a successful FBA business, there's nothing stopping you from selling that first brand and going to build, use that capital to go build out five new ones with the same exact process. So fall in love with the process, not the brand is what I always tell people. Interesting. And I guess if you can have five brands that you've created and sold and then an aggregator or whoever it might be has grown them, then you've made five brands rather than one. Um, On on a similar sort of subject, do you see much or do you work with much individuals who are just resellers as opposed to brands? Uh, What does that look like for you? And maybe those resellers then create brands from the funds they earn from you guys? So yes and no. Uh, it, it's very unlikely a reseller a brand, like a, a FBA wholesaler or whatever, would get listed on our marketplace. And it's not because you can't sell them. So I want to be clear on that. You definitely can sell these brands, but it is just super difficult from our uh, point of view in that at least our buyer network tends to not be very hungry for these kind of uh, reseller brands. So you definitely can sell them, most likely not with us. Uh, we have sold a few. There are a, a few um, you know, businesses we do accept, but unless yours is super high quality, I probably wouldn't come to us with it because as it stands right now, we, we reject about 92% of businesses that do get submitted with us. So we have a pretty high rejection rate already. Um, so you're usually going to be better off selling that privately and then doing what you're saying, taking that profit uh, from that reseller business into, say, a private label brand that, or a brand that you create yourself. Yeah. But if someone's certain they've got a decent brand, then they should be coming to you guys and having the conversation. Yeah, it definitely can happen. It's just rare. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, with with regards to the actual process then, obviously you've spoken a bit about the background of Empire Flippers, the benefit to, to maybe selling your brand. Um, yeah, what does the actual process look like? If I'm an FBA seller, I maybe have a couple of hundred thousand dollars per month in terms of turnover on my store. 
think I've got a really good brand. Haven't really gave it much attention until these aggregators have started moving to the space and there's now an opportunity to sell or more of a mm-hmm. understanding of what selling might mean. What does my journey now look like if I want to sell my FBA business? Sure. Uh, I'm assuming they're using us in in this example, but uh, so if you want to use a broker, how the process works is you submit your business for sale and there's no like agree, like no exclusivity you've signed at this point. All that happens is you'll get a certain amount of tasks to do to help us vet your business. So we vet the business to make sure it's legitimate. And we also do it to help you like present something that is super sellable, that looks nice. Cause a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs, as you probably know, at Payoneer struggle with their PL. <laughs> it could be quite messy. And their accounting is often the wrong format to give them the highest valuation. A lot of uh, e-commerce will do a cash basis when they really should be doing a cruel when they go to sell. Uh, so we help them rebuild their entire PL, get rid of any of those mistakes. And we talk about like, you know, everything that went wrong or went right with the business to build a good uh, data sheet for our salespeople to use when it is listed with us. So at the end of that process, we give you the valuation and you say yes or no. If you say yes, you can come onto our marketplace the following Monday. And that's when my team gets a hold of the listing and we start marketing it to our buyer network across social media, paid ads, uh, our content, obviously, and then a ton of very complex email uh, marketing campaigns using our CRM. So there, there's a joke like, oh, brokers just email their list. Like, God, I wish it was that simple. Then we have like all these triggers and different behavioral events based off budgets and different personas that they filled out within our HubSpot CRM that we like delve into that campaign to uh, help sell that listing. Uh, but And then our sales team will actually go and field most of the calls for you. And you as the seller will only get on the phone uh, you will only answer a question if our salespeople don't know the answer to it because we try to you know, let you do your thing, run the business while we sell it. Um, but when you, we have a serious buyer, we'll get you on a call with them called buyer-seller call. And that's when things start getting more real or closer to execution. And if you agree with the offer, you sell the business. Of course, there's negotiations, counter offers, all that kind of stuff. And after the business is sold, it goes into our migration team. And like I mentioned, we're the only broker that does this. We actually help migrate the asset over to the buyer, which is by far the most tedious and stressful part of the entire process. So I think it's a, one of the best value adds just for that to use us. Cause like, man, transferring an Amazon FBA listing is annoying. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we do that for you. Uh, and once everything is good, the buyer gets two weeks, which we call the inspection period. Uh, this is re- another reason why buyers love us because this protects the buyer in case we miss something in vetting to make sure they didn't buy a lemon. As long as the business is making over 50% of what was advertised and it's all good to go. Uh, at the end of that two weeks, the business is fully handed over uh, to the buyer and the seller gets paid out minus our commission. If there's an earnout in that case, we will also manage the earnout on behalf of the seller. So the seller doesn't have to worry about like, when's my balloon payment due or anything like that. We'll <laughs> handle it all for them. Cool. So it sounds quite complex and uh, there's a lot of things that you're doing, which obviously adds some value. But from the seller's perspective, I'm now thinking, oh crap, that's a lot that I need to do, uh, a lot of work that I might need to go through and, and maybe a bit of time. So how long does that process take and what's required of the actual seller in this relationship and how much work are they doing compared to you guys? 
Sure. So most of these seller tasks can be completed probably in a week of maybe, and of course it depends on the complexity of your business. Like if you're selling a $30,000 Amazon FBA business, obviously that's going to be way simpler than like a $12 million one. Right. Uh, and that could be done probably in a few hours. So to give us what we need. Uh, but usually it can be done in a week for the most part. And then the real uh, labor is done by our vetting team, compiling all the different data sources you've given us between Seller Central, email list, uh, you know, your PNL, all, all that kind of good stuff. And we compile that for you. There will be like here and there, maybe a, a, a call or two to clarify certain things and make sure we're on the same track. And after about two to four weeks, depending on again, the complexity of your business and how overran we are, which right now we're pretty overran. We are getting like 150 new businesses submitted to us a week. Um, we will get back to you with the valuation. Uh, and that's when you do your next real interaction with us of whether you agree with the valuation, whether you want more or less, and we advise you on what is the best path. Because sometimes we will list your business for more than the valuation we give you, but we'll always warn you, hey, if we do this, there is a higher chance it, like you, you're going to need to have just a longer sales expectation and the road to selling the business is going to be harder because we we have two different frames we look at the typical and the absolute uh, range. The typical is like the smoothest, uh, easiest path to selling your business. And but some people want higher or some people even want lower because they just want to sell real quick. And that brings its own swath of problems that we have to educate the seller on. But but yeah, that that's it. Um, in terms of vetting, it's pretty painless. We we take care of the painful part for you usually. Okay. So I can have a call with you, maybe do a week's of work and then let you crack on with it and and hopefully just hear from you when the business is sold and I've got money in the bank. <laughs> you you have to do more than that, but that's that's <laughs> it for the vetting process. Yeah, uh, once you're actually listed, you will have to uh, do you know do some buyer seller calls most yeah. likely. Uh, usually, it takes about seven calls. If if you have a, a seven figure business, it takes seven or eight buyer seller calls that you could expect to be on with different buyers doing due diligence on you. Uh, but but yeah, overall, it's pretty painless. Like we do, we we want the entrepreneur to keep running the business. Like there yeah. is an element of like a a secondary part-time job you're taking on yourself when it goes to selling your business, but by no means is it as laborious as if you were doing it privately. And again, you're going to get way more money using a broker than a private deal typically. So it's worth it if you're really keen on selling the business. Okay. Interesting. And in terms of the length, obviously they vary completely. What's the average time it takes from start to close and money actually arriving in the bank, would you say? Yeah. So on average, uh, across all of the businesses we sell in the marketplace at all different sizes, it takes right around 43 days to sell the business. So not bad. Uh, in terms of a seven-figure like Amazon FBA business, I, I'm probably going to fail on this number because I'm terrible with statistics in my head, but I, I believe the number was 20 days until an accepted offer. So what that means is you had a few buyer-seller calls, someone's giving you an offer, you accepted it, but the deal's not done because usually at the seven-figure phase, there's often like a, a limited due, uh, due diligence exclusivity period where they want some time uh, to look deeper into the business, but they've already agreed to the price, all that kind of stuff. And usually that would take another 10 to 30 days before the process really gets going. The real painful part of selling FBA business is again, migrating it because Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to really speed that up. It can take between two, sometimes six weeks to transfer the business. And that's purely an Amazon thing, <laughs> working through the, the labyrinthine organization that is Amazon to get the deal, to get it actually transferred. 
Interesting. And your relationship with Amazon, are you able to go into any detail of that? Have you got a relationship? Do they like you doing this? Um, and what's their viewpoint of of brokers like you and, and the business in general? Yeah. So I, I actually have a, a fairly close contact at Amazon. Uh, my Our migration team, they have a different contact than I do. I work with the one that specifically works with brand aggregators. So he's like their account specialist. So he, they come to me, hey, is there a new brand aggregator on the scene? You know, we'll talk about it. Sometimes I'll give them a referral of a good buyer of ours. So they'll have a connection at Amazon. Uh, and likewise, I always try to pitch him, let me do a guest post on Amazon, which he came close to getting me once, <laughs> which would have been awesome. But uh, so, but him and I, we, we will ch- give a chat because Amazon is super fascinated by the space. Uh, I think they have a very small department dedicated to the buy and sell now. Uh, so we, we, we don't run into the issue that we used to run into, which is where, uh, you know, a customer service person at Amazon, we say, hey, we just sold this business. They're like, what do you mean? You can't sell accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, they're thinking like a fraudulent thing. We're like, no, 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 the actual business we sold. So we don't have to deal with that problem anymore, <laughs> which is great. Uh, but yeah, so Amazon's very, I, I, I don't know what they fully think of it, but I know they're excited by what's happening in the space. Yeah, yeah. I guess it brings attention to what you're doing and to the market in general. And, and it means it's now a way that people can make money, which brings in more people to the Amazon space. I read yeah. that in 2020, there was a million new sellers that joined Amazon, which is absolutely crazy. <laughs> and obviously, <laughs> the more that people make money from it and make money from a sale, the more that joins. So, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so cool. So we kind of run through what, how someone would go about selling a business and what that process would look like, um, which I think is really valuable information to, to our sellers and other sellers that are out there. In general, in terms of the actual valuation of that sale, how would you value a business if it was to come to you? What sort of things would you ask and what sort of things would you request to reach out valuation? Yeah, sure. So the the general valuation formula for a business is quite simple. It's uh, your 12-month average net profit times a multiple. Now, we don't do annual EBITDA. So you're about to hear me say like numbers like 30, 40x. When I say that, I'm talking about a monthly EBITDA. Uh, that just is a legacy thing because we used to sell businesses that were like three months old back in our $50 a month site days, right? So that's just something we still do. We price everything on a monthly basis. But uh, that multiple is the real ambiguous one of the formula. Like, well, what goes into a multiple? And there's a bunch of different things. So the number of products you have, for example, could affect your uh, multiple. Like remember the critical point of failure I mentioned earlier in this interview, if you have one product, that is a point of failure. But likewise, that doesn't mean you should go and, all right, well, to lift my evaluation, I should have thousands of products then, right? Like that's also the wrong move because if you say you're a $100,000 Amazon FBA business with a thousand different SKUs, no one wants to buy that thing, right? Like that is a lot of SKUs for very little reward. So it's a balance. Uh, typically the sweet spot is going to be between three to eight products with no one making up the lion's share. So that's an aspect. We look at things like brand goodwill. And on Amazon, it's actually quite easy to see that because of the review function of the ecosystem, right? So we look at the reviews, uh, the general reviews, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Then we also look at other things like, do you have an email list? Do you have uh, traffic diversity where it's not just Amazon organic or just paid Amazon ads driving all the revenue because Amazon changes their organic algorithm. Like, do you even have a business anymore? Right. Uh, so any of those kind of things, uh, the revenue diversity, which goes back to the products that I mentioned <clears throat> and age is a factor too. So obviously 
the past doesn't predict the future. But if you've been on at, on Amazon for say five years, that holds a lot more weight to it than say five months, because you've probably have weathered multiple different like life changing changes that they've rolled out on the marketplace during that time period, right? And the fact you're still around hints at the resiliency of the business. So those are things we look at. Um, lesser things like seasonality, dips or spikes. We look at those things too, like what's going on here. Uh, sometimes it's you know an out of stock thing, which can happen, which if you're listening out there, FBA entrepreneurs, keep things in stock because that will hurt your valuation uh, and hurt your organic ranking too. But so we take this confluence of things and add them into the valuation formula. There's a bunch of other things too, but those are some of the basic ones. Okay. So what we try to encourage sellers to do in general, and it'd be good to hear your take on the impact this has on evaluation, is to expand geographically. Obviously, with the payments product that we have, we, we open up all the doors of the Amazon space, including Amazon India, Amazon Mexico, Amazon Canada, wherever it might be. What impact does geographical expansion have on evaluation? And what impact does diversifying the marketplaces or the websites that you're selling on have on the have on the valuation of a business as well. Yeah, this is a great question. I, I should have mentioned this in the valuation stuff. So, diversifying marketplaces, say going from USA to UK, EU, all these different places, that is basically diversifying your traffic on steroids because you're on completely different marketplaces often governed by different algorithms in a sense, because a lot of times they don't update in tandem. So one update that might lower your USA rankings might actually shoot up your UK rankings, all that kind of stuff, right? So having that diversity of geography is fantastic. And Amazon in particular is quite good at helping a business owner to do that. Like, I don't know if this is still the case, but I knew for a while if a USA entrepreneur uh, into the UK market, they can literally press a button and suddenly they're operating not just in the UK, but all of EU, right? Because the way uh, Amazon's warehouse network worked. So that is fantastic. I, I think every entrepreneur should look at doing that. Uh, a lot of the brand aggregators, that's one of their big strategies. They'll buy a one geography place, click that button, like now we're worldwide. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, and on the marketplace side, obviously, we've just been speaking about FBA. Does it make a difference if they're using Walmart, if they're maybe on the European side, cdiscount, bubble.com, etc.? What impact does that have on the valuation? Oh, that again, it can be huge, similar because it, it's the same thing as going to a different geographies on the Amazon marketplace. You're diversifying traffic and revenue sources by doing this. You're eliminating critical points of failure. In this case, you're eliminating one of the biggest critical points of failure with Amazon FBA, which is Amazon, right? Because <laughs> like, you, now you're on Walmart, you're on House, Wayfair, all these different places. The problem that usually happens with it is the entrepreneur typically can't spend the time to become an expert on that platform. So typically what we'll see is, yeah, I, I have a Amazon a store and a Shopify store. The Shopify store only makes like 1% of revenue though. <laughs> so we'll see that all the time. So like in that situation, it's not going to have a meaningful impact on your valuation. But if you can bring those numbers up to where say Walmart's like 15%, 
that can have a meaningful impact. And if you have a Shopify store, uh, that can have an even more meaningful impact as long as it's a respectable amount because that's more of an asset you control versus uh, the Amazons and Walmarts of the world. And I give that advice all the time to my FBA friends and they never take me up on it. Like, yeah, one day I'll diversify. And now we're seeing all these brand aggregators, a lot of their long-term strategy is they'll start on Amazon to build traction and then go build their own retail portal, like uh, not a Shopify, but more something more custom typically to go sell their products in a DTC manner. Uh, so they actually listen to my advice without me ever giving it them, uh, giving mm-hmm. it to them specifically. But but yeah, diversifying as much as you can in a logical way, as long as you have time to focus on actually making it produce a meaningful result, it's always going to be good for evaluation. Okay. Okay. And I guess the third way, which I could imagine there would be an impact on the valuation. If I've got a perfectly running Amazon business or Amazon and Walmart business, and I've got the cogs turning, the cogs turning, but I know that I can increase my turnover by just employing more capital. Um, and an example of this might be Pioneer's working capital product. Um, mm-hmm. If I can employ that capital and be certain that it's just going to increase the turnover, that's obviously going to have a massive impact on the valuation as well, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're investing, you're, you're taking the small term risk of the loan or the payment solution that you're taking to dramatically grow the overall demand. So that's part of that hamster wheel that I was mentioning earlier that, you know, in order to scale up, you're going to have to also scale up your expenses with FBA to a certain level. Uh, after you get to a certain level, you should definitely focus less on growth and a little bit more on deleveraging that. Because well, what I've seen is FBA entrepreneurs, like I saw a, um, a $23 million FBA business literally destroyed themselves overnight. And that, that was bootstrapped, but they were bootstrapped to and leveraged to the like <laughs> the nth degree, right? So they made a mistake where they sold all of their stock on a, a discount where it was like for cost. And it's like $250,000, $300,000 worth of product just gone, you know, like with no shipments coming in because they had just bought a ton of shipments uh, and they lost their whole business for that. So I always tell people like wow. using those kind of programs, fantastic for scaling. Just remember, growth can be just as dangerous as a declining business. So uh, you reach that next level of growth and kind of stabilize for a while before you go on to the next level. Just always make sure, you know, the revenue is protected in that sense. And how, so going back to the business that I have that I could employ capital into and increase that turnover with the objective to sell, how long would you need to see that increased um, turnover for it to be significant to impact the valuation, um, six months, a year, two years, consistently. Yeah, I mean, I mean, twelve months is the shortest uh, time period for the most ideal because the golden pricing window for a uh, to price a business is twelve months. That's usually what everyone's looking at. Now you can do it on six months or even three months, but. Typically, when you do a price that went on a three or six month, you're also going to damage your multiples. So you're not going to get the best multiple. Now, you might still get a bigger valuation uh, because you are using those uh, shorter pricing windows. But you also run into the issue that some buyers really don't like that and they're still going to price you on a 12-month window. Uh, so it can lead to uh, a harsher negotiation ground in, in that sense. But uh, 12 months is what I would say. Uh, if, you're re- if you want to go really quick, six months is still reasonably doable. But 12 months, you're going to get the best bang for your buck okay so if a if i'm a seller who's interested in selling and know that i might still have a little bit left i can push out of the business buying including some more capital then i could 
include that capital, stick it out for 12 months, and then look to sell at this higher valuation, which, yeah, typically you could imagine could have quite a big impact, right? Yeah, it could have huge impact. I, I, that, that's another thing that I say for a seller to be careful on. Like, that's a good idea if you yeah. are 100% confident you can do it. But, uh, like, in a lot of ways, like, once you reach a certain level, like a one and a half, two and a half million dollar FBA business, like, if you waited 12 months and sell it for sell that two and a half million dollars for 2.9 million, like, well, that's a big risk to, of that two and a half million, right? Mm. Like imagine what you could do with two and a half million in your pocket plus combined with those kind of programs you're talking about with new brands that you bootstrap with that two and a half million, right? So that that's always a debate I uh, invite sellers to have in their head because I've seen people uh, you know, wait it out with these kind of things. And then something happens to the business. They can't figure it out. They end up selling it with us for less than what it was worth 12 months ago. Yeah. It's interesting. And the businesses that you work with, is it completely global in terms of the seller base that you're looking to, to sell and in terms of the buyer base as well? Sure. So our seller network is super global. We have people from Russia, we, we uh, uh, Vietnam, you know, Thailand, all over Europe, UK and USA. Uh, we actually had a, a seller from Nigeria that once that uh, when we went to go pay her out, our bank was like, are you sure? Like, yes, we owe her money. Like, do you <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like, yes. Like, did they, did she tell you she's a Nigerian, uh, a Nigerian prince? Like, no, she's like a legitimate entrepreneur. Like that. I felt really bad for her. Right. Like <laughs> she wouldn't let us wire the money, but uh, yes, yeah, so our seller network is all over the place. Typically they're going to be selling like their actual business that they own will be selling to the American marketplace, but that's not always true with FBA. So Amazon FBA, we've sold um, European ones, Mexican, uh, Mexican focused ones, uh, Australia, well, not Australia yet, but Amazon's opening up in Australia and we have sold Australian e-commerce stores, but Amazon FBA in particular, we uh, see sellers in non-USA markets that can sell with us too. As far as the buyer network goes, I'd I wager like 95% of our buyers are American. They might not be in America, like sometimes we have digital nomads are also buyers, but they tend to skew towards the American crowd. Okay. And outside of these big private equity firms or, or big investors, what did the typical investor look like or buyer look like for you guys um, before, like say for a million pound business before these guys moved in, just out of interest? Sure. So uh, like I, I mentioned one of them, which is the seller that becomes the buyer, right? Uh, others are what we call newbie norms. So people maybe not with a lot of experience or any experience with digital businesses, but they tend to be working like a nine to five and middle management. They have money. They're not they, it doesn't mean they're not business savvy. They just never ran an internet business. So they might be very good with business, just never ran an affiliate or e-commerce store. And they come in and they'll buy a business from us. We get people who are flippers. So people who look for businesses that have some kind of problem or issue and they'll buy that business. Maybe it's declining in terms of profit. They'll go fix that issue in six to 12 months. They'll actually flip it with us again. So we've sold, I've seen the same business sold with us four times at this point for, wow. from the flippers. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so that's where we get the second part of our name is the, that kind of like real estate flipper mentality. Um, then we also have people who are strategic buyers. So these are people usually with an established business already that are on the hunt for something very, very specific where they can go and acquire a business that they can almost bolt on to their current business. And that one plus one equals five for them because of the amount of synergy they're able to, to produce there. So those are, those are some of our buyers. Usually uh, 
on the low end, people still working the nine to five grind. Maybe they're looking at budgets between like a hundred all the way up to 500 K. Then you start getting the high net worth individuals that typically had some kind of business background, just not in the online space, like that commercial real estate investor I talked about. So they really, the buyers are much more diverse than the sellers. I I will say that they come from all over the place. It's interesting because this podcast is going to be titled how to sell your FBA business, obviously targeted towards our seller base um, and looking to inform them of how they can generate that income but but yeah they could effectively be buyers of the businesses as well um it's quite oh yeah yeah it's quite an interesting dynamic that, that you guys have <clears throat> um just reverting back to when we were talking about someone selling their business and how they can increase their valuation um i guess even before they approach you what are the key things that they should have in mind to sort out um before they even enter conversation with you or even seriously consider selling their business? What what do they else they need to do to their business? Yeah. So before you do anything with your business, I think the biggest thing to do is have a, you know, just a real conversation with yourself. Like, does selling this business help me in either my personal or my business goals? Like that should be the primary motivator for you to sell. Cause like I said, it's like, we take away most of the pain for you. There's going to be some pain in selling a business. It's not a smooth transaction. It's not like you're going to a grocery store and just buying something, right? Like it's going to have some challenges involved and you've got to be committed to it. So uh, ask yourself, what's your plan with the capital? Do you have a plan? Uh, that's a common thing. Entrepreneurs, they can fall into almost like a, a bit of depression after they sell their business, have this life-changing exit, if they didn't have a plan for that capital. Because they're like, I'm really happy for five minutes. But now it's like, what do I do now? <laughs> you know? So It's good to have a plan before you even uh, get, get close to talking to us is what I'm saying. Uh, once you are committed to it, like, yes, I do want to sell. I do want this life-changing income, uh, this life-changing exit. That's when you, what I would suggest you to do is to actually set up an exit planning call with us. And we'll just do a quick preliminary look at your business. Usually the the call's like 20 minutes to an hour for most businesses. And we'll tell you what what you should start doing, what your timeline should be. Like if if we think your business looks good, we could recommend selling it now uh, and get the vetting process started. Or if we see some stuff you should clean up first, like maybe you had, uh, you know, that out of stock issue, right? Like, okay, well, it looks like you had an out of stock issue three months ago. Let's give yourself another three months to move that needle a little bit past you're already scaling up anyways. So this will help your average net profit lift up. Let's revisit in like say six months, right? And they'll follow up with you, make sure that you're committed to the plan, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it really depends on the business. The most important thing though, outside of the in the mindset thing is your PL. So like I mentioned, most e-commerce entrepreneurs are not the best at math when it comes to their PL, which I get because you have tons of different things they're doing. And when a buyer looks at your PL, they see a mistake on it. Well, this is literally the most important document in your business. That makes them question well, what else is wrong with this business, right? So I've seen that kill deals by creating hesitancy in the buyer when they see issues in the PL. So that's a very important thing. And obviously we build it for you. So you don't have to worry too much about it till you're ready if you want to use the broker at least. But if you're going to do private, make sure you have the PL on point, like hire a professional to do it for you. Yeah, yeah. So as long as, as in addition to the actual sale of the business, you guys are going to advise or help people who might be interested in selling into how they might be able to clean up their business um, before they sell in order to maximize that. It's interesting. 
For sure. So we, one of my good friends, he just listed a business with us. It's about uh, 2.3 million, I think. It's a service-based business, not a FBA business, which are both for sure the hardest kind of businesses to sell. Uh, they are very difficult to sell. So we actually did exit planning with him for two years uh, where we had like a monthly call with him. Like, how's it going? Did you hit this milestone? All that kind of stuff to help it become uh, easier sell, like still be tough to sell because it's a service business. And even when he listed with us, I reached out to him on Facebook, like, look, this is going to be a tough business to sell even with the exit planning we did for you, right? Because it's just a tough, tough business model. And his response to me was like, I actually don't care if we sell it anymore. Like the exit planning was so good. I spent like no time on the business anymore. I, I've like automated almost everything. I'm working on like two other businesses now. Like my, my $2.3 million business is basically like a part-time job for him now because of the exit planning, right? Which is what we want. That's a that's a thing we try to help entrepreneurs. And this sounds weird, but I always tell people like, you want to become the least valuable person in your business if you want to sell that business. Because if you're the least valuable person, that gives the buyer tons of confidence of buying your business. Like, like oh, you're not even important to this anymore? Of course, this is more attractive now, right? So that that's a part of the exit planning process. Interesting, interesting. And if a buyer was trying to or a seller was trying to speculate the market and figure out in their mind when the best time to sell might be all other things equal what does that look like now on the seller side and um, there's obviously a boom going on with people selling businesses was the market better to sell before is it better to sell now and in the future would it be better to sell your business all other things equal yeah, well, I, no one has a crystal ball, so I always tell people never time the market. Don't do that; <laughs> it can lead to bad, bad anguish for you. But uh, in terms of like on a macro level, where we're at, the first four years I was at Empire Flippers, it was 100% a buyer's market. Like multiples were low, valuations were low, the business models were still relatively new and not as mature as they are now. Uh, in the last year and a half we've really entered a hardcore seller's market. I've never seen a better time to sell. So again, don't time the market, but if selling the business helps you reach that personal or business goal, you cannot ask for a better time to sell right now. In terms of the future, I had a few friends ask me, is this like a bubble? Because valuations have risen so dramatically and I don't think it is. So I think once the pandemic goes you know, kind of away, and we're back to living normal. A lot of this e-commerce trend, we saw this massive adoption of e-commerce. Well, that was already happening. It just sped up dramatically. Like the pandemic did in 10 months, what the trends were saying would happen in 10 years, right? Uh, in terms of everyone shopping online, we just got their way faster now. And I don't think that's going to go away. Another thing, like it might be a drop, but certainly won't be back down to 2019 levels anytime soon. Uh, the other thing is, brick and mortar businesses, like from a traditional business brokering kind of background, like if you were selling a gas station or a laundromat or something more uh, main street like that, that business valuation tended to be much higher than say an online business, like an Amazon FBA business, but that's nowhere near the case anymore. The valuations are much more on parity now um, or online businesses way outpaces that brick and mortar valuation now. So I don't think we're going to see valuations drop. I, I think once things go normal, there might be a bit of a dip just because there's less of the e-commerce traffic, but I don't think it'll be anything significant. So the next two years, especially, I think will be almost a guaranteed best time ever to sell. Now, obviously another black swan event could come around and just prove me completely wrong, right? Uh, but right now, at least, is the best time I've ever seen to sell. Yeah, very interesting. Um, 
to be honest, I think that that draws quite a good close to the conversation. Um, I think we've walked through Empire Flippers, the seller, their kind of journey with Empire Flippers and what that might look like. Um, do you think there's anything to add on your on your side that we've may have got may have not gone over or may have missed that the sellers can can see good insight from and good advice from? Sure. Um, for FBA owners specifically, I do highly recommend that state of the industry report of mine because I look at, I think it's about 200 FBA businesses that we sold and I break them down by pricing tiers. So if you are interested in selling and say like, well, I'm not a seven figure FBA owner, I'm a, you know, maybe a 200 to $500,000 FBA owner. Like, well, I have a whole category specifically just for you of all those deals and what it looks like, what kind of earnouts people got, all that kind of stuff. So if you are wanting to get more education, that's a great place. Um, that's just empireflippers.com slash industry report. And you can find that in terms of, uh, I can't think of anything else, like in terms of parting wisdom, but if someone wants to connect with me, they can definitely connect with me. I just Greg at empireflippers.com or add me on LinkedIn. Cool. Cool. Brilliant. Um, and, and yeah, I think that draws us to a close. Um, so yeah, if anyone's got any questions, then do feel free to reach out to Greg. Also on our side, as we briefly mentioned, Payoneer, we can help you target different Amazon markets. Um, we offer the payment solution to every core Amazon market. And we also offer working capital solutions so that you can have the ability to scale your business before looking for an exit. And we can impart our, our wisdom and advice there as well in order to help you do that in conjunction with our partnership with Empire Flippers. So if it's even at all a question on anyone's mind, I would just advise to reach out. Um, I hope it's been pretty useful to get the broker's perspective on the sale of an Amazon business. And as I say, if there's any questions whatsoever, then please feel free to reach out. We'll be sharing our contact information. So, so yeah, no questions too small for us. <laughs>